Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning on this third week of Advent. Sometimes this season feels rather like a roller coaster, and God, we ask that you help us to slow down, to be present to you and each other in these shared hours that we are given, and that you would open us up to what you would have to say to us through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So I have an issue with the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Uh, We were practicing with the kids for the kids' Christmas nativity program on Wednesday night. Hannah was leading the music, and it's like one of those times where you're like singing a song and you for the first time, pay attention to the lyrics you're singing. And the reason that I did this is because we were trying to teach the kids the lyrics. And I I said this lyric and I thought, no, that can't be right. So I went and looked it up and I looked at Hannah's lyrics. Nope, that's exactly what it says. I had the lyric right. In In the song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, there's the line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And the word that I thought was wrong was fear. I was like, surely that's got to be a different word than fear. And then when I saw that it was right, it made me wonder, why? Why is fear in this lyric? This is something that is massively amazing. This is something uh, you know, that is good news. What does that mean that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight? What would someone have to fear about this newborn king? And why are fears alongside hopes in this expectation of the Messiah? Everything is about to change for the better. Why would anyone fear that? And then I thought about that a little bit more, and it started to make more sense. Everything is about to change. Stephanie, Stephanie said it before I did. Everything is about to change and change. Even if it is for the better, we fear change. Because changes mean things are going to change for me. And You don't know at the beginning how that change is going to affect you personally. Changes equate unknowns, even if they are for the better, even if they are ultimately good ones. I may not like a change that comes upon me without my choice. I used to work at this nonprofit in Nashville who, for a time, the board of directors had many intense meetings about our our vision and our our mission. And when they were done with those meetings, they announced to all the staff the decisions that they had made. They had basically decided that um, we were going to eliminate one of the three main things that we did because we were going to narrow our focus and make our mission more what we thought it needed to be. what they thought it needed to be. Now, I was like pretty happy with this decision because I thought, man, they had the courage 
to make that decision. I could see how this narrowing of focus would really help us to accomplish the mission we have rather than being so multifaceted. We would really be able to focus and do that one thing we were doing well. But the reason why it took a lot of courage and the reason that it was difficult was because multiple staff members would lose their jobs as a part of this change. In that narrowing of the focus, it also meant that multiple people would no longer have a job because they were in working in that program that we were eliminating. Now, my job wasn't lost, but my coworkers whose jobs were lost, they really resisted this change. The ones who had something to lose. Now, I imagine a lot of this resistance, which came out as like, you know, it was kind of rough for a while, uh, were really just afraid. Afraid of what this meant for their, for their livelihood, for their families, for their career, for their path. I'm sure that that's what it was. Even if there is a good and a right change, they can be, changes are fear-filled endeavors that can also be full of loss. So, um, I'll give one more example. Um, so, I'll just use the company Amazon as sort of the tip of the iceberg example of like consumerism in our world, right? So like platform Amazon makes consumerism so easy, right? Like, uh, so personally, I know that places like Amazon, the way that we do commerce and consumerism is deforesting the actual Amazon, you know, uh, creating a waste-filled world, uh, making climate change worse, uh, participating in actively uh, the sixth max mass extinction that we are experiencing right now. But if the way of consumerism as evidenced by the company Amazon were to totally change, if everyone got so much more local, commerce got so much more local, to a place where Amazon went out of business, something that maybe we hope and we pray for, if finally someone will take my idea of saying, no more semi-trucks are allowed on government-built roads, uh, <laughs> then, just kidding, that's a, that's a, a claim that I've made in the past of a way to solve uh, the, the market is like, don't allow semi-trucks and then we will, you know, you know, they ruin our roads anyway. But uh, if, if all of that were to change and e-commerce were to get so much more local, man, I kind of am afraid of that. I think I ordered like five things off of Amazon this week, five different orders because I can't like think of all the things I need at the same time and order them at the same time. I fear that change. What would that look, it might, it should be for the better, but is it gonna be for the better? Is it gonna be inconvenient for me? Is that gonna be hard? And wasn't COVID-19 feared and resisted not only because it threatened our very lives, but also because it so deeply threatened our way of life? In Advent, we are preparing for this change that is about to come upon us. The presence of God with us. This process of preparation does and should tap into our prophetic hope for a future. 
but it also taps into our fear because we are talking about things changing. Zechariah was terrified when he saw the angel that was about to announce the good thing that he had been hoping and praying for. Mary was also told by the angel who appeared to her less than six months later to announce the second birth, the second, uh, you know, birth announced by angel of the Lord in six months, she's also told to not be afraid. Today's candle that we'll light in a little bit is called the shepherd's candle. And if you remember the story, the shepherds were terrified when the light shone in the darkness and they were overcome by this heavenly host of angels who announced the birth of this newborn king. And these are the ones that are obvious. But I think in our passage today, we can also intuit that perhaps Mary was scared after the fact, after the angel had announced and she had given consent to be an instrument for the Lord, that she also was still afraid because the text says that she made haste to go and see her cousin Elizabeth, who had already been pregnant for six months, who the angel told her about that this had already happened to And as Mary enters Elizabeth's house and speaks a greeting, I love this. This is like, this is the side sermon. Uh, At the sound of Mary's voice, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the prophecy about John being filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth is fulfilled. In response, Mary speaks what we have now come to know as the Magnificat, a poem, a revolutionary poem, about how it is the lowly will be lifted up with this change, how it is that the hungry are the ones who are blessed with this change, while the rich are sent away empty because of this change, and the powerful are brought down from their thrones because of this change. It's almost like this preview of the Sermon on the Mount, which also makes me wonder what else Mary taught Jesus that she recognized as he spoke things from his own lips, how she might have smiled at him on occasion, a knowing and loving smile that I do sometimes when I hear my daughters say something that I recognize came from a previous discussion or experience that I have had with them. And John the Baptist, Elizabeth's son, he was doing fine for a while, but I suspect that even he became afraid, filled with the Holy Spirit as he was, as he sent his messengers to Jesus in our gospel passage from prison and asked him, are you the one to come or should we expect another? It makes me wonder if John wasn't trying to stir Jesus up to action, like John was imprisoned, facing a potential death sentence, while his cousin is supposed to be the Messiah. Come on. 
the one to bring the kingdom of God, this political change. And here Jesus is doing practically nothing to help his cousin who had prepared the way, who had made the path straight in the desert, the one he had known since, like, in utero, the one who baptized him in the Jordan River. They were brothers from another mother. They were second cousins, technically. But Jesus answers him, look, look at what's happening. The prophecies are being fulfilled. The lame walk. The blind see. The poor have the good news preached to them. I wonder how that landed in John's ears. The answer that Jesus wasn't coming to save him from death. And then Jesus goes on to say about John that no prophet is greater than John. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. God's coming. The transformation of what is into something different. Something that we believe is better. Something that is much hoped for. But in the same breath, we can't ever be sure what it will mean for us personally to follow this king. What does it mean that God comes? When God's reign breaks into our lives and our city and our world, what does that look like? The first Isaiah, which I'll read in a moment, and John the Baptist have the same imagery, drawn the same image for what this looks like. They say, it's like a straight pathway. It is a pathway in which all of creation is flourishing. All people who are part of creation are flourishing. Where God is, the prophets say, where God comes, the landscape is changed. It is transformed. Instead of a desert, we have a garden. This is the good news, and it is full of hope, and it is full of fear. What does it mean that God is with us, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are a part of the family of God, and yet there are things to lose, things to grieve, and there is work to be done in this coming kingdom? God is coming. God is redeeming. God is buying us back from the slavery that we have found ourselves in. For some, that might be the slavery of consumerism. The need for things to experience a sense of safety. For some, that might be the slavery of a secret addiction. 
a biological and, and psychological disease that destroys. For some, that might be my own ego that has tried to protect me from a scary world, but I look up and I see the boundaries that I have created and they look like a prison with no key. For the people at the time of the prophet Isaiah, the slavery was actually a place, a people. It was Babylon. The people were in exile. A foreign country had captured them. And Isaiah 35, which we will read in a moment, speaks to the people about a redemption. Now, we often over-spiritualize this word redemption whenever we see it in the Bible to equate sort of this moment of prayer and personal transformation. But Isaiah 35 in its context is not talking about a redemptive moment of prayer where we are freed from the prisons of our own psyche. It is better to understand it, the better way to understand it is to think about Brittany Griner. So if you haven't heard the story this week, the American basketball player Brittany Griner was uh, released from a Russian prison. She had been arrested a year ago um, and sentenced to serve up to 10 years in a Russian prison for having less than one gram of marijuana oil on her person in the Russian airport. And this week, the US government redeemed her in the Isaiah sense of the word. They bought her back from Russia the government went to bat for her. They offered Russia an arms dealer in exchange for a, an American basketball player. The redemption of God in Isaiah is that God actually buys us back from the slavery that we have found ourselves in. That is what we have hoped for. It is the good news, and yet... There are things to lose, there are things to grieve, and there is work to be done. <clears throat> John, poor John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophets, filled with the Holy Spirit before his birth, he had a calling to fulfill. He had something to do. He prepared the way. He made the paths straight. He lived his life and he did his work. He was God's prophet, and he was executed by the state. As many prophets before him and after him have also been. Prophets, we say in godly play, are people who come so close to God and who God comes some cl so close to that they know what God wants. They can imagine it, they picture it, and then they talk about it, and they work for it. In vivid word images, we get the pictures of the prophets to know about the kinds of changes that God wants to see. Prophets use the images that they have, that they know, to speak poetic pictures of what this coming looks like. For example, one prophet imagines a wolf. Now, wolves in 
the Old Testament, wolves in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and every modern story for children are the bad guy, right? The wolf, um, both of my kids were scared of wolves that they were in their closet when they were kids because, I mean, the big bad wolf, just, just think of it. There's all kinds of wolves. Uh, you know, the three little pigs, wolves galore. <laughs> but for this one prophet, <clears throat> the wolf, he imagines, or she, imagines the picture of the future of this coming kingdom. And you know what happens to the wolf? The wolf is not set free to do what they want. The wolf is not killed. No, the wolf is actually redeemed. The wolf lays down beside the lamb to sleep in this transformed world, which makes you think of how the lambs must have felt the first time the wolf came to lay beside them. In this new world, the enemy arms dealer isn't redeemed to be set free and isn't taken to be killed, but they are also redeemed in this world, transformed. It is an upside-down kingdom where the poor are rich and where the least are the greatest. And today we get this very practical and very imaginative description of this transformation and what it looks like when God comes to redeem God's people. And over the next several minutes, I'm going to ask you to engage with me in a time of listening and imagination. We're going to practice being prophets. And as I read through Isaiah 35 and this prophet's picture of what this different world looks like, listen for the language around the senses, sight, taste, touch, smell, hearing. This taste, this scripture is very sensuous. It comes alive. It is over the top. It is descriptive. I'm going to read it with a little bit of commentary. And I'm going to ask you then to imagine yourself in this world that the prophet describes. After I finish reading, I'm going to ask you to continue either closing your eyes or keeping your gaze soft uh, because I want to lead you in a short time of reflection, imagining yourself engaging in this world. This is kind of like an imaginative prayer. And then you'll know I'm done when I say amen, and I invite you after that to um, just keep the silence as Caleb comes to sing our next song. You're welcome to engage at that point in any way you want to. Singing, you might want to write down something you imagined. You might want to pray more. Any of those things are okay. And so here's what I said if I haven't said it. (laughs) If the least in the kingdom is greater than John... It makes me think that we all might have things to lose, things to do, and work to do for this kingdom that we are also charged to prepare the way for, to make the paths straight for. We have things to lose and things to grieve and work to do too. And if God comes close to us, and if we come close to God, if we can imagine this different world, we might just know what we need to do.
to prepare the way for the Savior in this one. So I'm going to ask you now to find a posture that's comfortable. I'm actually going to turn off one of the lights and shut the door. Um, But find a posture that's comfortable and... And try to, during this time, use your imagination as much as possible to picture this world. You can either close your eyes. If closing your eyes is distracting, just try to soften your gaze. You can look at a candle or focus your attention on something nearby. But listen listen to how the prophet describes this world. The wilderness... And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. The desert, the place of death, of lack of water, the place where people get lost, it will blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly. The crocus is a a species that is one of the first to bloom. One of the species of crocus is where we get saffron, one of the most expensive spices in the world. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and shouting. The glory of Lebanon, a wealthy nation, shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, great nations, they shall come and see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, Do your hands feel weak? Make firm the feeble knees. How do your knees feel? Say to those who are of a fearful heart. Another translation says, Say to those who have an anxious heart. Be strong. Do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. The anxiety, the weakness, the feebleness of your body. Do not fear. God is coming. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be opened. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Those who have lost a sense will be restored. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness 
in the driest place. There will be streams in the desert, the burning sand. Can you pull to mind the feeling of your feet on burning sand? And then as you walk into the cool water, the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. Now, when I think of swamp, I think of I think of you know the movie Shrek, where the swamp is where no one lives. But but a swamp is a place where there is no lack of water, where there is hugely diverse ecosystems that is flourishing. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. They shall flourish with this abundant of water. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way, the truth, the life. A highway shall be there, and it will be the way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Presumably, God's people who are fools will not go astray. This highway, this pathway is so obvious that the temptations that have previously been problematic to pull us off our path are not there, and even a fool cannot get lost on this pathway. Oh, and no lion shall be there nor any ravenous beast to come upon it. They shall not be found there. We shall not be at risk on this pathway. Nothing will be there to prevent us. It will be a pathway of safety. The redeemed shall walk there, and the the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, Zion is this future place where God is present with people. Sometimes it's used to describe Jerusalem where God's presence is in the ark. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now imagine yourself walking on this path that the prophet describes. Have you been to a place like this? A place with a flourishing ecosystem, with people who are joyfully safe on the paths that they travel. Now imagine Within that sense of peace and hope and safety, 
you come across a part of the path that is crooked, misleading, confusing, unmarked. It should be straight, and yet it isn't. Here it is, on God's highway, crooked, and people are getting lost, and not just fools, but anyone who comes this way. Maybe the crooked place has a name. What could its name be? Maybe you already know its name. Maybe you need to ask God what its name is. Many famous places people get lost have names. The wilderness, the desert. What is the name of this place? Picture it in your head. It is a place in the world gone wrong. It is on the way but it is twisted in upon itself. What is the crooked place you see in the world called? The simpler the name, the better. The clearer the picture becomes. Sit in this place for a moment. What work will it take? What is needed to make a way <clears throat> straight? What is needed for this pathway to become straight? Take in this whole scene. Amen.